0: Welcome to our podcast, Neurology Morning Commute, New and Emerging Treatments for ALS. Morning Commute is developed in collaboration with At Point of Care and Projects in Knowledge and is part of a continuing medical education series. This independent CME-CE activity is supported by an educational grant from Mitsubishi Tanabe Pharma America. In this podcast, Dr. Jeremy Scheffner and Dr. James Berry discuss new and emerging treatments for ALS as well as managing some of the more debilitating symptoms of the disease. Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash ALS. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. Dr. Scheffner is a professor and chair of neurology in the department of neurology at the Barrow Neurological Institute in Phoenix, Arizona. Dr. Barry is the Winthrop Scholar in ALS Sciences, the Averill Healy Endowed Chair in ALS, and the Chief of the MGH Division of ALS and Motor Neuron Diseases in the Department of Neurology at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. I am Candace Hoffman, Managing Editor of Morning Commute. Dr. Scheffner will begin our discussion.
1: Hello, everybody. Welcome to our podcast on new and emerging ALS treatments. Uh, James, thanks for for joining me today. I kind of want to start with saying that um, this kind of discussion really couldn't have been done 20 years ago. Um, At that point, when I was younger in my career and James hadn't even started yet, um, really the number of treatments that people talked about and thought about as as efficacious in either uh, disease modification or symptom management. really would never have come to mind when we didn't really have the ability to to think about those things. And so even though ALS remains an incompletely uh, treated disease and and we clearly are motivated to to find new and better treatments, uh, the fact that we can just talk about uh, many things to do for patients with ALS I think is a positive step. So let's start by talking about where we are. Uh, We're going to go a little bit in chronological order and start with the first drug that was approved uh, for uh, symptom management uh, for disease modification in ALS, and that's Rilizol. Uh James, how do you use Rilazol?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think Rilazol is sort of the first crack at the disease. And I guess one of the things to say about Rilazol is that there's a there's a big difference between having nothing and having something. And so, you know, Rilazol is something I talk about with every patient, and certainly the majority of patients, I think, elect to to use Rilazol. Yeah. We think about it as a disease-modifying therapy that has a modest effect, I think. I mean, I think we all kind of agree in the field that the the effect is modest, but it seems to be there demonstrated again and again, both in the initial trials, as well as in sort of follow-up, more real-world evidence or or, um, retrospective trials, studies.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that um, really is all sort of came into use without a clear understanding of how beneficial it was. Um, The original studies uh, well, the first one, which was which was fairly small, suggested a quite significant effect. And the second, much larger study, suggested a more modest uh, survival effect. Uh, but there have been a lot of studies since then, uh, a lot of, of studies in, in, in countries where healthcare systems went from everybody Uh, having really is all unavailable to everybody with ALS having really is all available. And those kinds of studies have have really suggested that the survival benefit, which was estimated at about three months in, in the uh, second phase three study actually may be significantly greater than that. And um, there also is some hint, um, both from the original really little study, which had some functional measures as well as um, uh, some of the uh, uh, studies in Investigating other agents, where really is always either uh, taken or not taken at the at the decision of the patient, to suggest that that there is a functional benefit as well. So, um, I, I too suggested for everybody, uh, it's pretty well tolerated. Um, the only uh, adverse effect that I see with any uh, regularity is our GI symptoms and and. I tend to, uh, when that happens, suggest that instead of taking it as the label directs on an empty stomach, to have patients take
2: it uh, with meals. Do uh, you do that as well? I do. And you know, I would say, I think it's about 10% of people at the most who have these GI effects. You know, We don't want people to have nausea because we might talk about it later, but one of the really important things as far as nutrition is just making sure that people with ALS maintain their weight. I guess one of the things I do is if people have nausea, it often happens, you know, right when they're starting the medication, I might have them stop the medication and then, you know, stop for a few days till it goes away, start at a lower dose and see if they can tolerate that and then move up after a couple of weeks to the full dose. So they might go to once a day for a couple of weeks and then twice a day until they can tolerate that.
1: I've had success with that as well. Um, I do worry about blood levels being somewhat lower uh, if people take the drug with meals, but actually it turns out that the blood levels with really are incredibly variable, whether it's it's taken with an empty stomach or a full stomach. So you know there there isn't that much of a systematic change. Yeah, so I I, I agree with you. I think it, it you know it's a, it's a modestly effective drug, but it changed the way people thought about things in that uh, um, all of a sudden people had a drug to give to people with ALS and, and could say with some confidence that you know this drug, had a meaningful benefit for people who took it, so um, and and it's still part of of, of any kind of dis, uh, treatment regimen that I, I prescribe. But a long time went between 1995, when uh, riluzole was approved, and 2017, when the the next drug was approved, and that's darovone. And although there was significant discussion about whether riluzole should be approved. Many years later, there was also significant discussion about whether a Daravone was meaningful in terms of help helping ALS patients and should be approved. James, uh, do you want to sort of describe the, the, the early studies?
2: Yeah, and, and I should say that, you know, I think, you know, I wasn't yet in the field when the when the Realizal trials were, were sort of coming out and that data was coming out. And, and um, it'd be interesting to, I'll, I'll describe the studies in the Daravone. It'd be interesting to hear how, you know, how the debate was similar and different um, when the Daravone first came out. So there were two really seminal studies, phase three studies looking at Adaravone In the first study, uh, both were done in Japan, but in the first study, there were around 200 participants and there was actually not a, a significant difference between uh, the, the rate of disease progression uh, in people who were taking a Daravone, um, and people who were taking placebo. But when the investigators looked at subgroups, they found that those who had a more rapid disease progression did have um, a larger difference numerically between uh, the rate of progression on placebo and the rate of progression on, on a This was a relatively short study, six month study. And so, you know, I think there were some questions about whether the, the slowest progressors in the study were um, not contributing meaningfully to the data. You can't show slowing of a disease if it's not, if it's not changing over time. And, uh, and so, That was one of the reasonings, that and the observation that in the more rapid progressing group, uh, there looked like there was a numerical difference, but the investigators went back and did a second study, which was actually a a little bit smaller, but a more highly selected, more homogeneous population. So uh, there were uh, just over 120 participants in the second study. And in that study, uh, there was, and actually in that second study, everybody was on Rilizal as well just to reduce the, the heterogeneity of the trial population. And in that study, um, looking at the ALS functional rating scale, which is a 12-item questionnaire and how we assign the primary endpoint in a lot of our trials, there was about a 30% slowing. Now, over six months, that meant about a 7.5-point drop in the, in the placebo group, about a 5-point drop in the treatment group. But again, that, that amounts to about a 30% slowing, which was you know, highly significant.
1: That brings up the question of how we measure disease progression in ALS currently, and the ALS functional rating scale revised um, is the most common primary outcome outcome measure in ALS trials. It's received a lot of somewhat negative attention lately in the sense that uh, people realize that each question has not the same amount of first importance to ALS patients and, and, and second granularity. But it's been used enough now that that we really do understand how it behaves. And really, it's it's proved reproducible quite well in terms of when trials recruit the same kinds of patients, we, we see the same rate of decline in the ALS functional rating scale. One of the weaknesses of this, as well as any other scale, really, is that when you say there's a two and a half point change between placebo and treatment groups, it's not necessarily Immediately obvious what that means to a patient, and so oftentimes what I'll end up doing is going over the individual items of, of, of the scale. For example, there's a walking question, or a, or a, a speech question, or a swallowing question, and it turns out that if you look at the the items, each one of which are graded from zero to no function to four uh, to to normal, which is a normal function, a single point drop in some of these uh, in some of these questions is really very important to a patient. It's the difference between being able to eat or not, or being able to walk or not. And so um, a two and a half point change, although it it may sound like not a lot, and it may be different from person to person because it depends on which two and a half points have changed, in general is a quite significant alteration
2: in the function of people with ALS. So uh, to me, this was a pretty robust finding. Yeah. And it was highly statistically significant. You know, the other thing I would say is that it really demonstrated how we can design clinical trials in in a really responsible way, which was that there was one trial that did not have an overall uh, benefit, but there was a subgroup that looked uh, like they may have derived more benefit. And then the second trial was designed based on that prospectively, and that's, you know, that's where the significant benefit came from. So, you know, I think that's the way that we should be doing trials is, is, you know, gleaning all the information we can from them and then doing more prospective trials to to test our hypothesis.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. So, you know, the fact that the first study you discussed didn't show a significant difference is somehow, in some people's thoughts, taken as a a weakness in this developmental program, but I think it's actually a strength. I mean, they they looked at the group of patients in whom they saw the strongest effect and designed a study to test the hypothesis in, in, in that group and saw a significant signal. That first, actually both studies were were short. They were six months and um, they were basically enrolling people with relatively early ALS. And so uh, within six months, there was very little of a survival signal, meaning that really everybody just about survived the, the, the placebo control portion of this trial. I know you've been involved in, in, in looking at survival uh, changes as a function of the Daravone in sort of real-world subsequent data. Um, can you talk about
2: that a bit? Yeah, so um, there was a poster at the European um, ALS uh, meeting, the annual uh, European ALS um, network meeting this year that was looking at, uh, in a large insurance database, the effect of a Daravone. Uh, usage in, in in people with ALS, and you know, using propensity score matching and looking at real world evidence in, in this you know very large um, database, um, and you know the the results of this was that um, using using really robust matching uh, methodology, looking at people who are not on edaravone, uh, and compared to those who went on a Daravone in 2017. So we have sort of a, a seminal time when, you know, when people could choose to either go on or not go on and we can get good um, cases and controls. There was a 12-month survival difference between those who uh, did not use a Daravone and those who did use a Daravone. You know, I think that's a really, certainly the largest study that's looked at this. Um, and I think it's a you know, it's a different methodology than clinical trials, but it's the kind of evidence that we saw coming out you know, after the, the, the initial randomized trials in really as well, that I think began to kind of build the evidence that it wasn't just two trials, but it was two trials plus, um, you know, lots of, lots of experience and lots of other additional different kinds of real world evidence about really that began to kind of build a body of evidence to support its use. And I think we're beginning to maybe see that in a as well.
1: Yeah, I think so as well. And I mean, you had mentioned, you know, that, that maybe to talk a, a, a bit about sort of the controversies in terms of physicians adopting Rilizal when it was a, first available and then with the with Daravon. Uh, I am old enough to have experienced both. Um, and, and the issue with Rilizal really was fighting the kind of therapeutic nihilism that had, had emerged around ALS. It was thought to be a neurodegenerative disease that was impossible to deal with. And all you could do is sort of, you know, bring people to terms with it. And the idea that you could actually do something to impact the course of ALS was a, was a huge leap for many people who had been working in the field for years and years. Uh, the second issue was that the very large uh, phase three uh, survival study uh, showed a difference in survival in the sort of midterm to middle, early term to middle stages of the trial. This, this trial was a, an 18-month trial. And at 12 months, there was a significant survival advantage in people taking really long. That difference got less and less as uh, the trial got longer. That's actually, I think, to be expected in survival trials where you're not actually curing people. So I think it was more a statistical phenomenon than a real phenomenon. But that was also that was a reason for people to not judge really is all as significant as I think it was. For Daravon, there was a lot of um, talk about how strictly the trial was enrolled in terms of what the inclusion criteria were. And I I think, at least I hope, that there's been some education in that regard as well, that restricting uh, patient characteristics in in clinical trials is a tool to make trials more efficient and shorter, uh, not to necessarily predict that those are the only people who will benefit by a
2: drug. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, if if you if you use the enrollment criteria to choose a biologically different group of people than the overall group of people, then you know, then maybe generalizability becomes a problem. But you know, in ALS we see a lot of het- clinical heterogeneity that is that we don't think that there's a biological underpinning for. And we're also probably reading across some biological heterogeneity, either across times within the disease or, you know, but if we see effective therapies in the group of ALS as a whole, then we think that we can generalize. So I agree. So
1: in terms of drugs approved for the treatment of ALS writ large, we've sort of come to the end, Um, but there are a couple of other uh, ALS treatments that uh, have data associated with them that are not approved at this point that I think are important to talk to. And, And then I'd also like to spend a few minutes talking about how we treat ALS symptoms. Uh, first, let's talk about uh, a drug developed by Amelix called AMX0035. Um, this is a drug that had really its first human exposure in in an ALS trial that was almost exactly the same size as the uh, pivotal aderivone study, and actually showed
2: very similar results. James, do you want to do you want to summarize that briefly? Yeah. So again, it was just over 120. 120- Uh, people enrolled in this study, um, there was a similar move to find um, participants who had at least not the most slowly progressive forms of ALS, because again, it was a, you know, a six month trial and also to reduce heterogeneity by having inclusion criteria that would, that would get us sort of at least semi-similar participants. Um, And those were really the same principles that were brought to the, to the Adarivone, the second Adarivone trial um, and then, you know, the results of the AMX0035 trial were that um, we saw about a 25% slowing of progression on the ALSFRSR. Um So really, really similar kinds of results from a similar design trial, which is really exciting.
1: And this study also was followed by a, a, a significant open label extension uh, component And those patients who elected to stay with uh, either active treatment or placebo, who were then changed over to to open label, were followed for uh, and are still being followed, actually. Um, But in that group, comparing the people who were initially on the AMX0035 to those who were on placebo, there also seems to be a significant survival difference. And so in that study, which was published in 2020, um, those patients had about a a six-and-a-half-month survival difference. The people who were on AMX0035 initially survived six-and-a-half months longer. Now, remember that this is about the weakest test of survival that you could get because everybody after six months was placed on active treatment. So uh, in reality, if these results are in fact true, they probably predict a greater survival advantage than what was initially seen. Uh, so this is a drug that's uh, there. There is a larger phase three trial now being initiated, and, and uh, hopefully will be part of our armamentarium pretty soon. Um, one last drug that uh, I think both of us are excited about uh, is is a member of a class of, of agents called antisense oligonucleotides, which are short nucleic acid chains that directly match um, the RNA that produces the protein in genetic ALS that when mutated causes disease. And tofresin, which is an antisense oligonucleotide directed against um, RNA to produce the the protein, superoxide dismutase, um, has been studied in a phase one and now is is being studied in a phase two, three trial. But um, data from the phase one trial was published again late in 2020 and showed some dramatic effects. James?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think in general sense that it was a small number of, of participants whose data was published, but the SOD1 ALS and particularly rapidly progressive uh, forms of the mutation caused really a predictably aggressive uh, decline in the ALSFRS-R, And what we really saw is that, um, you know, participants had a really a flattening of the curve that was pretty incontrovertible. And along with that, we saw Reductions in neurofilament levels, and neurofilament is you know, we think a marker of neuronal loss is not not specific to ALS certainly, and being explored in many many neurological diseases. But we do see a pretty robust elevation in especially rapid progressors with ALS. So we have both biomarker and clinical evidence that in this one subpopulation that is you know, has a fairly predictable disease course. That we could that we could see that that curve changing, and and I think it made us all incredibly excited to see the results of the phase two three that's going on now.
1: Yeah, no, I agree, and and I mean the cautionary note is mostly that um, about ten percent of ALS is inherited in a clearly autosomal dominant fashion. About seventy percent of those people uh, have a, a gene that is identifiable. And only about 10 to 15 to 20% of of patients with inherited ALS have the uh, gene uh, mutation in in, in superoxide dismutase. Although I think it's very likely that this is going to be revolutionary for those people with that mutation, it's between 1 and 2% of everybody with ALS. So we still have a ton of work to do.
2: I would just interject to say that that the tools that are being developed to do this, you know, antisense oligonucleotides, um, parsing out the genetics of of ALS, understanding genetic con- contributors to sporadic ALS, are are really just going to, I think, herald a whole new way of approaching the disease, and and uh, it's incredibly exciting.
1: Yeah, I agree, and and it's just it's not just ALS. I mean, you know, when I was training. Uh, genetic diseases were really thought to be the one kind of disease you could never fix, and it, it's turning out that in many ways we were we we're better at altering uh, genetic the genetic code and, or, and genetic diseases than we are for sporadic neurodegenerative diseases, which is quite the contrast that uh, is compared to when I when I sort of started started work in this area. So we've talked about a number of agents that are. Moderately effective in treating ALS, and a couple more that hopefully will come online soon, and there are going to be many others as well. But although it's it's our hope, I think it's not necessarily the expectation that any new drug that's positive is going to be so dramatically effective that it will be the cure for ALS. And and so uh, in that light, I, I think it's important to talk about how we might use multiple drugs that all have modest effects. Uh, James, what do you think about
2: that? Well, I think one of the big differences between um, the, the drugs that we've talked about for ALS and you know, a field like multiple sclerosis, for example, is that in multiple sclerosis, most of the drugs are targeting the same pathway, which is an in inflammation. And so combination therapies have to be done really carefully because they have an additive effect on the same pathway. We really are talking about um, drugs here that, have, that are attacking different pathways in the pathology of, of ALS. And so I think really combining these therapies is standard in the way that we're using them now. And I, I think we'll continue to be, I think we, you know, as you said, we may not have one single home run drug in, in the immediate future. Maybe we will, and we hope we will, but, but even if we don't, the combination of these therapies we think can, can get us further than any of them, any one of them alone. In that regard, the analogy might be rather than
1: multiple sclerosis, it might be in the way that cancer is more and more effectively treated with really intelligent combinations, different drugs targeting different mechanisms, working synergistically together. Uh, And I think that's, I agree with you, I think that's more of a real hope for patients with this disease um, than the the search for the elusive complete treatment, which we may find, but we may not.
2: And important to keep in mind that in the Aderivone study, as well as in the AMX 0035 study, um, participants were on Riliozol, and in some cases in the AMX 0035 study, on Riliozol and Ederavone. And so the benefit that was found was on on top of those those other therapies.
1: I agree. And
2: so in many ways, this this sort of
1: combination approach is already happening. Um, I think it would be important to, to really... Include in any discussion of treatment of ALS all the things that we actually can do um, to, to help ALS patients both feel better and function better. Uh, and this is also, I think, a change from many from 20 years ago. Um, an ALS clinic is an amazingly interventional place. We do a ton of things, both medication-wise and in terms of devices and, and therapies. And so. One sort of exciting drug that also may have a disease-altering effect as well is, the, is a combination of dextromethorphan, which is the, the active ingredient in many cough syrups, and quinidine. Um, this has been marketed in a, in a proprietary way with a specific combination to address a, a symptom called emotional lability or suitable or affect, where patients don't necessarily feel incredibly sad or happy, but will laugh or cry uncontrollably. Uh, and and Nudexta, or uh, this combination of, of, of dextromethorphine and quinidine is amazingly effective at, uh, at treating this particular symptom. Um, in the trial that, that actually showed that, there was also a perception on the part of the investigators and, and patients that those patients on the active treatment who had bulbar symptoms, that is difficulties in speech and swallowing, also sometimes noticed that that was improved. And so a second study was done to address that question. James, do you want to summarize that?
2: Yeah, so um, in, in that study, the, the main goal was to see whether there was a subjective difference between, in rating between bulbar symptoms, that is dysarthria primarily, um, in people taking placebo and, and people taking um, dextromethorphan and quinidine. Um, and the answer was uh, on, a, on subjective scales that... Um, and it was a crossover design study. When when people were on dextromethorphan quinidine, they had lower subjective ratings of dysarthria. And there was a, a embedded in that study. There was also a, a capture of recordings so that we could use motor spe- quantitative motor speech analysis um, to analyze uh, those recordings. And and the quantitative motor speech analysis really backed up what the subjective rating showed, which is that people who were using um, dextromethorphan quinidine had Um, less dysarthria, uh, more mild dysarthria.
1: Yeah, and just in in my use of this drug, I I see the same thing in many of my patients do. Um, But that's certainly not the only uh, set of symptoms that ALS patients uh, need treatment for. Those patients with bulbar symptoms will have progressive trouble swallowing and ultimately can die because of calorie restriction unless we do something about that. And, And we use feeding tubes, quite extensively in patients who who feel that that's in their interest, and um, both in terms of quality of life and probably life extension, that's a significant uh, uh, intervention. Other kinds of devices uh, revolve around people's progressive loss of of respiratory function, which is a a hallmark of ALS, and most patients will ultimately die a a respiratory death. But um, various forms of non-invasive ventilation can truly and dramatically uh, increase patients' quality of life and also longevity. So those are two kinds of devices that really change the course of, of ALS for many people. Other symptoms are also treatable and, and I'm interested to hear what, what kinds of things you find especially useful.
2: Well, I, I mean, I think um, being able to manage um is, a, I think, a big part of symptom management for people who have bulbar involvement with the disease. And so we have a a variety of medications that we can use that help us manage them from scopolamine patches to atropine drops to uh, glycopyrrolate, all to help uh, reduce secretions, but also um, glyphenicin to thin secretions that are thicker uh, and help people manage them that way. I think those are really important. We also, you know, another device that we use, actually two more devices that we use, to kind of help with with secretion management and, and respiratory, are um, cough assist machines that help people clear things from the bearings or the back of the throat. Three machines suction that uh, can help them kind of get get that out. And then sometimes if, if secretions are really thick, we can just use saline a nebulizer to kind of uh, you know humidify and break things up and, and make that more manageable. Um, you know, the, the tagline for ALS is that it's a painless progressive weakness, and it certainly is, um, That that is the biology of the disease. It is true, though, when people have um, more disease and are more immobile that, that they can have various kinds of pain. And so physical therapy is, I think, really important for preventing things like frozen shoulder, um, uh, finding sleep positions that are comfortable um, and and sort of preventing pain before it starts. Obviously we can treat pain, but if we can prevent it, that's, that's even better. And then muscle cramping is something that some patients, most patients experience. And I think some experience in a way that is really, um, really bothersome. And, and, um, maxillotine has been shown in a number of trials now to be a very effective way to manage cramping in people with ALS.
1: I think we're reaching the end of our allotted time, but there, there. I just want to mention a couple of others. I mean, so so not everybody with ALS, despite the great gravity of the diagnosis, is depressed, but some people are, and and so use of antidepressants is is I think quite effective. Many patients with ALS are anxious and and have trouble sleeping, and we can we can treat that effectively. Um, I think in general, uh, it's it's just really important to remember that. ALS patients present to physicians with symptoms and and complaints that even though the underlying disease may not be dramatically remediable, um, the symptoms are quite quite, uh, accessible to to us in terms of treatment. And uh, it it really does make a meaningful uh, difference in the the way people live their lives. So I, I think in in a, in a fairly short period of time we've talked about a lot of treatment options and and hopefully some some exciting options for the future as well. Uh, I think that uh, you know the the next few years in, in in ALS research and 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 then treatment I think are going to be dramatically different. So I think at at this point we we should uh, end the discussion and and thanks a lot James it was a great talking with you.
2: Yeah, it was really wonderful to talk. I'll put in one final word, which is that, you know, I think ALS is an area that is just burgeoning with clinical trials, and that's often um, something that uh, people with ALS want to participate in. And and I think we're making more and more robust ways for many, many people with ALS across the country to be able to participate in trials. It's been a lot of fun talking, Jeremy. Uh, thanks so much. And thank you, everybody.
0: Remember to receive your credit and evaluate this program please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash ALS. Thank you for joining us today.